You know, there was a time when pastors would travel around, they would carry with them uh, oil for anointing, now we carry around our Purell. Well, it is uh, very good to be with you, even under the unusual circumstances of our day. Um, but, um, I was looking back at what I had done here last year, and um, basically, as I was thinking about the themes I was going to talk about this year, and I noticed that in the message, one of the messages that I'd given, I had referenced this, uh, this virus that we'd all heard about coming over from overseas. And some people were quite concerned about this, and we had no idea if it was going to be a big deal or not. But I had made some comments that even if it was, God would be with us through this time, and this might be an opportunity for ministry. And here we are a year later. <laughs> it's indeed come and been a reality, and now we're sort of fighting with it as it were. Um, I don't know what each of your individual lives have been like, Ours have been relatively good as far as what has gone on with many people, but we're all suffering through many challenges. And the challenges are quite diverse. There's the very obvious physical challenges of the virus. So Carmen, my wife, who, who isn't here with us this morning, but she, she's an RN working at the, uh, at the university hospital, and she works all of her shifts with COVID patients primarily now. Uh, and she gets to wear the cool space suits, uh, and uh, every bathroom break is a tremendous exercise in undressing and dressing and washing. <laughs> for, for most of us, we're not as directly impacted by that, but we think of all the people who have been so economically impacted. And we think about the people who have been spiritually and psychologically impacted. You know, they say that the greatest indicator of health in any society is its economy. So the more wealthy society, generally the better the health of its people. And when an economy dips, generally the worse the health of its people. So there are so many ways in which the pandemic has affected all of us. But the one that the Christian church is most competent to speak on is the one that deals with our spiritual or psychological well-being, psychological in its original meaning of the word. And so uh, I just thought, you know, it'd be good to sort of focus a little bit on what we could do to take the wisdom of the church and bring it forward as to how we can help ourselves and others to deal with these challenging times. So the theme I picked out is going to come from the book of Job, but I've picked New Testament passages for each message that kind of capture the theme, and we saw that today in James. And in your bulletins, I saw what was nicely printed. I wasn't expecting that, but that's great. That great little quote from John Cross, which really thematically kind of speaks to what's happening here. He writes, There comes into all souls... At least once in life, a severe test. And it is known as the dark night of the soul. It is when we are beleaguered by darkness, spiritual and mental, and when no hope seems to be near. And everything we try to do is thwarted. It is where the, the, the soul is forced to persist and enter into the glorious golden dawn of illumination and kinship with God, or relax into the dull slumber of a mediocre physical existence. You cannot avoid it. If this test has not already come into your life, it will. And how you deal with it is as important as life itself. I think that really captures where so many people are at today. Now, I like this quote. I don't always like everything this particular author has written, so I'm not endorsing him by using it. But I think it's very valuable as a thought place. So when we come to the book of Job, and I hope you have your Bibles with you and will turn with me there, I'm going to do this a bit summary style because obviously I can't read to you the whole book of Job over the next couple of weeks, but we're going to go through some good chunks of passages in there and talk about Job. 
And we see the very, very, very first words of this book is, there was a man. This is just the story of a human being, in one sense. Much more to it. But we're going to come into the story of a human being who is very much like us. But we're going to be looking at no ordinary human story. We're going to look at a human story within a cosmic perspective and see things that are going on that many of us perhaps never really imagined are really going on, even in days like today. Now, the biblical book of Job greatly deals with suffering. We already know what that means, so we don't need to so much dwell on it, but we want to dwell on the way Job responds to suffering. So each of my titles and themes talk about that. When bad circumstances overtake us, is this morning's passage. When bad circumstances overtake us, bless God. That's the message of Job. When bad circumstances overtake us, it's an opportunity to bless God, and that's the majority of chapter 1. The book of Job tells us to bless God because it asks us the great question, why do bad things happen to good people, and is God good? Is God good? Why do bad things happen if God is good? This is the great question everybody has today, and perennially, and always, and Job gets right into it, right into it with full realism. And we learn about this man who deals with these questions, whose wife deals with this question, whose friends deal with this question, and whose God answers this question. We learn a little bit more about Job in verse 1, though. Job, Job, not Job. We have Jobs. This is a man named Job. Job was a good man, we learn. He was blameless. He was upright. He feared God, and he turned away from evil. So if we can ever ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people? It happens rightly with Job, because the Bible tells us he's the good person. It identifies four things about the way he's called good. He's called blameless. The Hebrew word here speaks of wholeness or integrity. It's, it's all of us. All of us have ways in which our lives don't line up to where we want them to be. And surely that was true for Job because he's human. But what this is talking about is that we don't have sort of compartmentalized lives. Where in church we're kind of one person, right? Everything's good. But during the business week we're, we're somebody else altogether. And in our families at home we're something else altogether. No, no, they said Job is consistent. You get Job here on Sunday, you get the same Job on Monday, you get the same Job at work, you get the same Job with his family. He's upright, he's a straight arrow, he's the guy that, he's, he's, we call him a boy scout today kind of thing. He always does the right thing. He tells us he fears God. He's a man of God, he's a man of faith. Always turning away from evil. Temptations come to all of us, but Job always turns away from evil. Sometimes we don't actively engage in evil, but we think about it a little. Sometimes we don't actively engage in evil, but we maybe get entertained by it. <laughs> Job turned away. That's the kind of good person he was. A man of integrity, a straight arrow, a man of faith, always turning away from evil. Consistent pattern. So why would such a guy like this go through such a hard time as is presented in this book? Well, let's think just a little bit more about where we are before we jump into the big question. I don't want to go into too much backgrounds, but it'll just help you to think about where Job is. This is an old book. This is a really old book. Scholars debate about its exact background, but the content of the book is the oldest in the Bible, the oldest in the Old Testament. This happened thousands of years before Christ. Sometime, somewhere, perhaps around 
the, between the time of Abraham and between him and Moses is the most general estimated time. The land of Uz, which is referred to here, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. Uh, that is thought to be in what would later become Edom in the Bible, and today would be like modern-day Jordan, probably, at least like where the political uh, borders lie today. So this is kind of the whole area we know in the Middle East. And Job is treated as a historical person, a real person in Scripture, not just an illustrative person. The prophet Ezekiel calls him a holy man. Uh, James calls him a man of faith, as we saw today, and, and other passages reference him as well. So he's a historic guy living in the ancient world, and we've got to think about this world in the way we kind of think about um, Abraham's world. Abraham was a really well-regarded person, but he dwelled in tents, and he moved around, and this was kind of the world Job was living in, not the modern world, not the world like our day. So in Job's day, if you want to think about wealth, you have to think of it in the same way that we think about it with Abraham. Wealth was measured primarily in livestock. So we continue to learn about Job that he was really wealthy. Sheep were considered to be the sort of raw wealth of a society, and he had 7,000 sheep. This, he would be absolutely loaded. This would be someone way up. This is uh, uh, Jeff Bezos or one of these people. Okay? He also had 3,000 camels, and camels meant that he was running caravans. I did a little study on this, and these caravans were, were, were really big deals, and usually about 15 camels would go, and they would make these long journeys, and they would grab all of these luxury supplies that only the highest in society could afford, and they would trade on one end, and then they would change for other luxury supplies and bring them back on this long journey. So if you look at the fact that he had 3,000 camels, I think I said 15, but I meant 150. <laughs> and, and you look at groups of 150 of them, we're looking at dozens and dozens of caravans that he was running. So he's running a, a big transport industry, trade industry, and luxury goods. Very wealthy. Then he has 500 pair of oxen. What do you use a pair of oxen for? Well, you use it for plowing your fields. So he's got agricultural fields. So he owns property. And, and one person... Typically, so when we settled Alberta, my family's been here for um, seven generations now. And the first generation that came out here, they came and, and moved into a forest. And in the mighty forest, they were brought out and dropped. And they went out and they knocked down some trees and they put up a tent and they stayed there through a winter in weather just like this. And my great-great-great-great-great-grandfather had to leave for a while in the winter to get supplies. So he left my great-great-great-great-grandmother and my great-great-great uncle, my great-great-great-grandfather wasn't born yet, in this tent with a newborn, middle of winter, and walked to Edmonton, which was a four-day walk from where they were, to get supplies. <laughs> and he left her a rifle, you know, just in case something happened. And sure enough, one night something did happen. Uh, some sort of animal climbed on top of the roof of the tent, and she had a near panic attack, and she stayed up all night watching it. And in the morning, it began to scratch at the top of the fabric of the tent. And so she grabbed the gun, which she had never used before, never fired a gun. She was from London. She was and, and boom, fired off the gun, and the loud alarm went, and the animal, whatever it was, took off. She didn't come near to hitting it. <laughs> and then she grabbed the baby, leapt out of the tent, and ran through the forest, towards the closest neighbor, which at that time was about two miles away. And she wasn't sure she was going to make it, you know, all this story while she gets there. But she finally got to the neighbors, and they brought her in. And then she said, I'm, I'm not going back there again. Well, sure enough, they were back in the spring. And eventually, they worked their way through. But the land they had was a little square of 160 acres. And my great, 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 great 
whatever it is, six, five times more than me, grandfather, <laughs> uh, chopped down every tree in that forest. And he had two horses at first, Chappie and Charlie, but they were troublesome and couldn't do enough, so he ended up getting oxen. And they used them to pull his plow and to turn up the land. They had to get all the roots out of the ground and everything. That 160 acres was considered what a person could handle. And it was more than enough work for a lifetime to, to work on, and it was more than enough to provide for his family and to begin the start of, of uh, my family's whole history in Alberta. Job had 500 pairs. How much land that equated to in the Middle East, of course, I don't know exactly, but put it into the terms that we understand here, he had a lot of land. So this is quite the guy. And then, of course, he had female donkeys. Why does it bring these up? Well, these were basically the taxi service of the day. <laughs> these took the dignitaries around. And he, obviously, because he had so many of them, provided them all around. And so, in fact, we learn in a summation of it all that he was, this man was the greatest of all the people of the East at the end of verse 3, the greatest of all the people of the East. So this was the wealthiest, the most influential, the most significant person, maybe in the world at that time. This is a mighty prince on the earth. And he was a spiritual leader in his home. The next couple of verses tell us about that. Um, Job wasn't just about business. His trust was not in his wealth, but in his God. And so we would see that Job worshipped in his family, that he would bring his family in, he would send for his children, he would consecrate them, and he, uh, he basically was a priest to his family. And Job uh, prayed and said, he prayed for all his children, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts, so he offered sacrifices for them. And the end of verse 5 says, he did this continually. So Job prayed for them continually, they came to him continually, he was a wonderful, successful spiritual leader in his home. And then, Suddenly, from seeing all of this, the greatest man on earth, financially, perhaps the greatest spiritual leader on earth, with a wonderful family, suddenly the picture changes. And in verse 6, we're captured up into heaven, and we see a very different world. This is the most fascinating part of the book of Job, and scholars have spent countless hours and many pages going into it, and so I'm going to give you the merest taste of summary of what's happening in here. But this is just a phenomenal thing. While all this is going on with Job, we think, wow, we know this guy. He's taking care of himself. He's got his money. He's got his spirituality. That's what life is about. No. Suddenly, the pastor tells us that's nothing. That's nothing. He built it all up so we could see how limited it was. Now it says in verse 6, there was a day, just an ordinary day, every other day. It started with, there was a man in Uz, and there was a day in heaven. When the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, this is the special Hebrew name for him, Yahweh, before the great God of heaven and earth. And Satan also came in among them. The term sons of God is really cool. It's a designation for heavenly beings that were non-human and lived in the spiritual realm. This is what is used all over the book of Psalms. It's used all over the place uh, in Scripture to refer to these spiritual entities. Typically, although they have different names, typically we know them in English as angels, and that's totally fine. But that's a description of kind of the role of a good portion of them, not really a description of their species and all of that. But they're, they're heavenly beings is what they are. 
Very powerful heavenly beings. And they come to present themselves before the Lord. The idea here is that they're the servants of God. This is the divine counsel that we read about so many times in Scripture. They come before God and they do God's business. This is the government of the universe. And then we see that in the monks' this report, someone called Satan came among them. Now, the name Satan here isn't a proper name. It's a title. It literally means the accuser. And the, the accuser came and stood among them. So there's a distinction. God's servants are there. And they're reporting to God what they did in his name. Yes, we went out and did this. Yes, we went out and did this. We accomplished this. This is what's going on in your realm. And then the accuser comes in. The prosecutor of the courtroom of the king of heaven. Now, the accuser becomes really clearly known in Scripture. Remember, I told you this is the oldest book in the, in the Bible. We get more knowledge of him as we go through Scripture. But this is a real being. Sometimes called the devil, sometimes Satan, sometimes Beelzebub, sometimes the serpent of old, serpent of old sometimes the dragon. Probably his most uh, personal name is Lucifer, the, the bright shining star. And he's treated as very real. Seven Old Testament authors, all the New Testament authors, plus Jesus, teach about him. Very important to know that he exists. We ought to at least know him well enough to run away from him. Three times in Scripture, probably, three times we hear his voice directly. So let me digress to give them to you because they're so, so, so rare. In Genesis chapter 3, we hear his voice. And he essentially says in summary to Eve, God is not being good to you. Has God really said he succeeded in convincing them, and they lived in paradise. Second time is here in Job, where he speaks to God rather than to the person, and he says to God, you're too good to Job. He said to Eve and Adam, God is not good enough to you. And to God, he says, you're too good to this person. And third is recorded in the Gospels, actually in several places, so multiple times, but in the temptation of Christ, he basically says to the Lord Jesus, I'll be better to you than God. And I'll give you these kingdoms without your going through the suffering which God has called you to. Well, when the Lord sees Satan in verse 7, he spots him. He spots him among the glorious heavenly beings and he points him out and he says, from where have you Come. It's the Lord who invites Satan to speak. Just as all the holy angels were required to report to God, so too God demands the devil report to him. I kind of envision this with a bit of a patient side. I don't know if that's entirely true, but I could just see it. He's getting his reports excellent. Getting his reports excellent. Ugh. All right, how about you? <laughs> Where have you been, accuser? While Satan, the accuser, answers the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. This is a statement of great pride, great power. Satan says, nothing has ever stopped me. I go where I want, when I want. I go to and fro. I walk up the earth and down it. I am, as Peter describes in the New Testament, 
prowling like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, and none stands in my way. Likely this was an attack on God, because God had just heard the reports from all of his agents who said, Oh Lord, we have been working over here maybe with Abraham, and things are going pretty well there, but you should see what the guys in Edom are doing, what they're doing in Egypt, and what they're doing over in what will become Babylon. These people are not following you. Oh, they're building the Tower of Babel over there. They're doing all of these things. They would be these kind of reports that God's plans were sort of not working out, and Satan's listening to this. And Satan says, unlike you, I've been going around the earth wherever I want. So, God takes up the challenge because he's actually much more in charge than the devil realizes. And he looks at him and says, oh, really? Unopposed have you been? And then God says to him, well, have you considered my servant Job? Listen to what God says. There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. So if there's any question about Job's goodness, now it comes from God's own mouth. You ever considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth. He's the greatest of the men of the East from a human perspective, and he's the greatest on the earth from God's perspective. That's pretty cool. Charles Spurgeon reminds us here that when called to account for his doings, the evil one boasted, and God brought him short by pointing out what must have been the greatest thorn in the devil's flesh, as it were. (laughs) Martin Luther used to say, The devil is God's devil. And we're going to see that here because now everything that he will do going forward is going to be at God's express control. Satan comes in and brags and God says, okay, let's talk about Job. Wait a minute. God brought Job up? We're going to learn about a rough day for Job. God started this whole thing? We've got to remember that. God started this whole thing. So when we ask the question, where was God when Job was suffering? He knew all about it. Well, God is not being at all capricious. God does not normally put a target on a believer's back. God is not going around trying to get Satan to do something bad to each one of you. Instead, this is a very unique moment in history. This is a Bible book that is in the Bible for our instruction. And Job, like David, or like Abraham or like Moses, is not really a typical picture of what our lives are going to be like. Most of us aren't going to do great miracles leading people out of the land of Egypt. Most of us, you know, aren't going to be kings in Israel. Those individuals were all chosen to be special servants of God, really to be pictures of what Christ will look like in the New Testament. And so they're a great example to us in what they did, but they're not really an example of us, as if, as in, this is normal. So when we read about Job and we realize that that the Lord sort of pointed Job at, sorry, pointed the devil at Job, he's doing this because he has a plan, and his plan is to be glorified and have Satan defeated through Job. Just as Christ will suffer on the cross to ultimately defeat Satan, Job will temporarily suffer in order to temporarily defeat Satan. Do you remember Philippians 1.29? Is that one of your memory verses that you guys do? It's not for most people. It says this, Paul, writing to the Corinthians, writes to them that they are blessed. Why are they blessed, he says? For it has been granted to you. The word granted is the same word that we use for grace. It's a grace to you. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, 
you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. There's your blessing. Oh, what? Well, God baits Satan, and Satan, I guess we could say, like a sucker, takes the bait. And so then he begins to accuse Job, and in, in essence, he says, look, God, no one really loves you. They only worship you for what you give them. He's so wealthy, he's the greatest of the men of the East. Take it away, and he will curse you to your face. And then God says, okay, behold, all that he has is, verse 12, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him don't stretch forth your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. The heavenly angels, the heavenly beings are all around. They're in counsel with God. The adversary comes. God calls him out. He boasts proudly that he's greater than God. God says, okay, you want to say that you're better than me? It's time for a contest. Have a look at Job. And Satan says, he's only so great because of all you give him. If you didn't make him wealthy and healthy and happy, he would not love you. He would curse you to your face. And God says, let's test that. Let's prove that. Job will stand the test. Wow. Well, the next section, we, we move from a portrait of a man to a portrait of heaven. And now we really move into a portrait of horror. And this is the least pleasant portion of it. So let me just summarize what's going on here. We, we learn in verse 13 of a back to a typical day on earth. Now there was a day, you see what's going on? There was, a, there was a man named Job. There was a day when the sons of God were in heaven. And now there is another day in verse 13, just a day, when Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house. The kids were all together. You see love and harmony of all the brothers and sisters. And then from verses 14 to 19, we see hell break out on earth. And we notice in what happens that Satan demonstrates his power over the unbelieving world. Uh, the book of Ephesians, Paul calls him the, uh, the, the God of this world and the prince of the power of the air. He has great power here. So look what he can do. He commands in verse 15, Sabian raiders to attack Job's oxen and donkey herds. Then he moves to the Chaldean nation. This is where Babylon will rise out of. And he has them move into the region and make a hostile takeover of the area that Job's caravan trades in, in in verse 17. And he demonstrates his pow the powers of an actual god, which is amazing. And look what he does in verse 16. He calls down fire from heaven. The fire of God fell down from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then turning on Job's children, Satan creates a weather phenomenon, a tornado, and literally smashes the house of love down on the siblings' heads. And this should confirm to us a whole number of things, the most important of which is that we have no business Scrapping with the devil. You and I have insufficient power and no commission to bind him and cast him out and chase him down and all of this stuff that we sometimes hear about. Puny humans cannot go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the devil. Instead, believers are told, stand firm in God, resist the devil, and he will flee, James 4.8. Our attention turns to God. So we might ask the question, did the devil bring COVID-19? We can't know. In Job, we just see the common days happen on earth. They don't see what happens in heaven. But you know what we can do? Stand firm in God. Resist the devil. 
and then we don't have to worry about him. It's God's power that will turn him away. Second, we see that Satan demonstrates great cruelty. In each case, and I read from verse 16 there, I alone survived to tell you. At each disaster, one person is left alive. And over and over, so Job's in his home and somebody busts into the office and says, all your wealth is gone. All your servants are dead and I alone escaped to tell you. All your caravans are gone. All your servants are dead and I alone escaped to tell you. All of your donkeys are gone. All of your business is gone. I alone escaped to tell you. All of your fields are burned. All of your crops are ruined. All of your servants are dead and I alone. And then, the children. Satan didn't just make Job's life bad. He demonstrated absolute cruelty and horror and callousness. He will kill without hesitation to make his point. As Martin Luther pointed out, For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. So we can't really imagine Job's situation. None of us in this life will go through what Job went through. He's a special case. But if in the most special case we can see his response, boy, that can be a lesson for us. Remember, Satan's great accusation was, if you do this to him, he'll curse you to your face. No one will follow you if things are bad. Job comes out amazingly. And I told you before that he's a picture of Christ. Let me just paint that picture as we wrap up this last section here. Think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, who went through something very similar to this. All the powers of hell were being unleashed upon him and assaulting him. And he prayed. And he brought his his disciples with him and says, Pray with me, for my soul is weary even unto death. And then, of course, they fall asleep. And Jesus prays, Matthew 26, 39 says, Let this cup of suffering pass from me. And the suffering that he was under was so great that the New Testament scriptures tells us that his pores began to drip out blood. And there's these descriptions of these medical conditions that may result in that. But whatever the, the physiological reality was, the anguish of the body was so great that the capillaries were bursting within him. That's horrible anguish. And then the blood poured through his sweat glands and looked like he was dripping blood. That was someone under intense, intense pressure. And three times he prayed that prayer. If possible, take this cup away from me. But each time the Lord Jesus concludes, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now through Jesus' suffering, The whole world will be redeemed. Satan will be defeated. God will be glorified. And we are told by Jesus, take up your cross and follow me. Imitate me. Paul says, be imitators of me as I am an imitator of Christ. And we say, oh yes, let's imitate Christ. Let's take up our cross. Let's be like Jesus. Gethsemane? Let's not take things too far now. (laughs) Our prayers are very different than Jesus' prayers. But the New Testament is very clear. 1 Peter 5.19, for example, says, Look, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We don't know what God is doing in our suffering. So I really find it discouraging, even distasteful, 
when we see somebody suffering and we don't have compassion on them, we say, oh, what have you done to deserve that? <laughs> You've probably heard that, right? Certainly not as bad because it's usually well-intentioned. The other one is to hear people say, well, God's got a plan, so it'll be fine. You're going to be fine. Just trust God. We can't be really blithe with this because these are really serious things. Job was going through what we can't even imagine. Tonight I'm going to talk about his friends. When Job's friends came and they saw how much he was suffering, it tells us that they just sat in silence for like a week. They didn't say a thing. But if we are not blithe about it, if we come with compassion, right? The New Testament tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Then we can come and say, listen to what Romans 8 says. We know that for those who love God, all things, including suffering and bad circumstances, COVID-19, work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom we foreknew, we also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, to be like Jesus, including Gethsemane, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. There's a win in the end. So we see Job. We move from a portrait of a man to a portrait of heaven to a portrait of horror. We now see Job as a portrait of faith, being just like Jesus. Suffering might be God's will, and when it is, we need to trust our faithful creator. I'm just going to give you three responses, actually four, four responses that Job has to this tremendous suffering, which are our take-home lesson. We don't get to the good part of the end of Job this morning. It does turn around and get better. But now we can see Job's full responses, and these are ones we can simply apply. First, Job grieved. Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head. No false fakery here. He didn't come to church, put a smile on his face, and say, everything's fine. He grieved. It's okay to grieve. Job didn't know what was going on in heaven. We can grieve, and I already quoted it, but we grieve with those who grieve. We need to be compassionate people with those that are suffering. It is good, it is biblical, and Job did nothing wrong when he grieved. Grief is okay. Then Job worshipped in verse 20, the second part of verse 20. Then, having grieved, he rose and tore his robe and shaved his head, right? Then he fell on the ground and worshipped. Great grief with great worship. We see this with David when he lost his son. Great grief. And then arose and worshipped. Grief and worship must go together. Through the years that I've been involved with pastoral ministry and working with people, one of the great things that I see, it's a great tragedy all the time, is when people suffer, they go into grief, but they don't follow up with worship because they go through a struggle of faith. I don't know how many times, it's not always true, so don't take this as like an absolute, but I don't know how many times you see someone, they've missed a few Sundays at church, very different now, of course, but traditional time, they miss a few Sundays at church, and I would say, "Uh uh-oh, something's going on in their life, and you just give them a phone call and ask how things are going, and quickly you find they've been going through suffering, and they didn't want to come to church because they didn't want to have to pretend. They didn't want to have to see everything. So you go and you spend some time with them and you be compassionate to them and you grieve with them and then you encourage them and say, how are you going to get past this? You have to come. You have to worship. He grieved. He worshipped. Hebrews 10.25 says we need to encourage one another all the more, all the more. He grieved, he worshipped. Then he accepted God's will. Verse 21. Then he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave 
and the Lord has taken away. In the King James, it's more poetic. The Lord giveth, and the Lord has taken away, or taketh away. Just as Jesus did, Job trusted God. It can certainly be hard. It can certainly be hard. But those who suffer according to the will of God trust their souls to a faithful creator. When Abby was born, she got really sick. She had all kinds of problems, a failure to thrive and all these sort of things. We ended up in the children's hospital, which incidentally ended up getting me back to Canada and staying here. The Lord was leading me even through all of this. But she's fine now, of course. You've all seen her. But for a time, she was not fine. And there was a great deal of concern that she might not become fine. They thought that maybe she had meningitis and all these different things. And I, I still remember sitting when she had to get her little spinal tap. And they said, a lot of times the parents don't want to be in the room for this. And so I thought to myself, I certainly know that I do not want to be in the room for this. So off I went. And I can still remember that little tiny weeny weeny body screaming in the next room and thinking, oh my goodness, what's going on? Uh, but I was talking with a friend of mine and I was saying, uh, well, you know, I said, uh, we, the only thing we can do is trust God and, and wait and see what happens. And I remember my friend looked at me and he said, I mean, you're totally right, but can you actually do it? <laughs> and that really stuck with me. Anyway, God was good to us. Abby was fine. Job, same thing here. He, 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 he has grieved. He has worshipped. Now he's accepted God's will. Look, this is where we are. I have to trust God. He is good. He is trustworthy. And even if... Even if there is a death in the human realm, that's not the end of the story, is it? We believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting. So finally, Job, who has faith, turns and blesses God. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There is no grudging worship to appease a dry, uh, to, sorry, to appease an angry deity. Job didn't say, oh my, bad things are happening. Quick, sacrifice a pig to Zeus and hopefully he'll back off on his anger. That wasn't what happened. No, 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 no. Job grieved, then he truly worshipped. He truly and deeply in his soul trusted the Lord and then he was able to bless God. That's what that means here. Blessing God is not the effect of sort of, yeah, yeah, blessed be God. Yeah. No, no, he was committed to God. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name, said the psalmist in suffering. Job would later say, even though he slay me, I will hope in him. And the Bible's commentary on Job's actions, verse 22, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with any wrong. In our day today, as many go through physical and psychological and economic suffering, we too can trust God. We can grieve. We can weep with those who weep and we can be compassionate. We can worship and we can see how worship will draw us to God and draw us through the suffering. We can accept that we are living through what God wills for us if needs be. And we can certainly pray like Jesus, take this cup away from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And then we trust. Grieve, worship, accept, and trust. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with any wrong. Not the cheeriest of passages, but certainly one I think that can give us something to do as we live through these challenging days. Tonight, we'll look at uh, the second theme, 
and kind of see how Job moves things forward. So I don't know if all of you come back tonight or how your numbers work, but those who are here, I will certainly see and I'll look forward to that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Job, especially thank you for it because of its realism and how it drags us into the real world of suffering that does exist. And we know that we are called to see it as an example, just as our passage from the New Testament in 1 Peter told us today. We are to consider the endurance of Job. I pray, Lord, that for each person here, you will help us through whatever challenges we are now facing in life or are going to face in the future, that you will help us to endure in the example of Job, to grieve when it's called on to grieve, to worship, to accept, and to trust. And we ask this in Jesus' name, knowing his own example, as one who suffered for your glory, for the defeat of Satan, and for the good of each one of us. But we do pray, Lord, that you would take this cup away from us. We pray that the current circumstances of this world would change, that the pandemic will be done, that the vaccines will come, that all of the things that are necessary in this world. And we pray that we would have an opportunity to minister to those who have gone through this time of great concern and don't have perspective like Job has.